Supernatural in Central Florida. It's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 136th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And that was a big fat lie because guess what, folks? I'm solo on this episode. Denise is out of town, so it's just me and the two fur babies here in the studio. She's hanging out in Colorado at a Taekwondo World Camp, so hopefully she's having a good time. On this episode, we're going to be covering a location that was suggested to us by our listener, Scott Stoller, and we had research assistance from Kristen Swintek, and that's Hotel Jeffrey, which is in Coulterville, California. This one was really hard to pin down because there's not a lot of history on this location. And even harder was to find out if it was actually still opened. It had a major fire back in 2014. It was supposed to reopen in October of 2015. And when you look around the website, there's nothing really updated. And it just still talks about the old fire and that they were hoping to open. I couldn't find any newspaper articles that said it had reopened. So I thought, well, what the heck? I'll go ahead and call the phone number. And every time I called, it would just ring and ring and ring and go to nothing. There wasn't even an answering machine service, anything of that nature, which is an indication to me as a business owner that you're not open for business. So unless somebody out there who is a listener in 2016 knows differently, I'm thinking that Hotel Jeffrey is still closed and under refurbishment. But this place appears to be incredibly haunted. We have a lot of experiences here. There's a lot of spirits supposedly living in this location in the afterlife. So looking forward to sharing that with you. Before we get into that, I want to point you in the direction of our website, historygoesbump.com. If you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at our email, which is historygoesbump at gmail.com. Just to keep everybody updated, our book club is reading Spook by Mary Roach. This is in July of 2016. I'm really enjoying the book. It's a scientific look at the afterlife. First chapter was on reincarnation, and I've started a discussion on that over at the forum. And for those of you who've read on further, please feel free to start up other discussions as well. I'm not in charge of the book club. I'm just kind of in it with you guys. So we do have a virtual meetup set up for July 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So if you are a contributor to the show, one of our executive producers, you are welcome to join us for that. It's only a dollar a month and you are in. So Maybe you can give up your coffee for the month and, and throw that extra buck towards us. We're really working on trying to build the show into something bigger and better. Denise is already, uh, well, I'm not going to tell you what she's done, but those of you who join us for meetups are going to be very excited about this. She'll be sharing it at the virtual meetup for the first time. Although some of the people who are with us at the Haunted America conference also heard about this, but for our executive producers, you guys will be the first ones to find out after the people who met up with us at the conference. So hopefully you can join us for that. And then we'll let everybody else know later on what 
what she's got up her little sleeve there. I do want to thank Michelle for her email and giving us a lot of suggestions in the Northwest. And we will be doing more up there in Oregon and Washington in the future here. And we also got an email from Christopher in Albania. I mean, we are international, folks. That is fabulous. He gave us a great suggestion, which is so creepy. I'm saving it for October. We're going to have a lot of great shows in October. So get ready for that. Huh. Who could that be? Oh, look, it's Denise calling. Let's see what she has to say. Hello, everyone. I'm up at an international camp in Colorado, and it's been fantastic. We're doing a lot of training, training, training. So every muscle, I found out where it is in my body, but I'm having a great time seeing old friends and making new acquaintances. So it's been it's been really, really good. And lots of people here have had haunted stories or have gone places, so it's very exciting. So are you collecting all of those stories for us to share with everybody? Um, yes, ma'am. And I'm also collecting um, more places to go. Oh, I called you ma'am. Yes, I am. And I'm collecting more places for us to go that we need to add to our list. And I've let everybody know that at our virtual meetup, you're going to be unveiling a special little something that we're going to be doing for people who do meetups at Ghost Tours with us. I absolutely am. And it is going to be really, really cool. So I hope everybody can tune in for the virtual meetup when it gets unveiled. Eventually, you all will know about it, but the the grand unveiling will be at our virtual meetup. Well, you keep having fun kicking and punching, and we'll look forward to having you back here in the studio with us. I'll look forward to being back in the studio, and I'll be looking forward to coming back to where there's like this thing called air. That will be cool. Got an email from Kathy Franco in San Antonio. She said, hey, ladies, I'm finally getting around to sending in some feedback. Bizarre States is who got me here, and I'm so glad they did. I listen while I'm running my miles around town. I also start my work days with you ladies. Both of you are my running buddies and also my best friends in my head. Thank you so much for just being you. Well, thanks, Kathy, for taking us on your runs. It at least gets us a little bit of exercise. <laughs> so we enjoy that. And Miranda, who joined us on our ghost tour in Denver. She's the young lady who brought us the hot chocolate. She heard us talking about the gin on the bonus cast where we talked about the Haunted America Conference and how Rosemary Ellen Guiley had been talking about the gin. And she said that she was really enjoying the bonus cast and she wanted to share some of what she knows about the gin. I don't agree with the conference speaker that all paranormal subjects can be lumped into gin, but these beings seem to make the most sense to me when looking back on my own experiences. One thing I remember being told about gin is that they each have individual personas, personalities. I've even been told that jinn themselves can sense demonic beings and that they fear them too, just like humans do. I was first introduced to the idea of jinn through a Muslim friend of mine. She and her father were very popular with spirits. I don't know if that's a good thing. Some human spirits would even say goodbye to them as they left this world for another. She and her entire family had many experiences with what they believed to be jinn, and she had many beliefs to share with me once I started having experiences of my own. She told me that for the most part, jinn are simple creatures and most seek to possess a form of some sort. To be clear, they don't necessarily want to possess a human being. They simply want to have a shape of their own. Some will haunt paintings and some will try to mimic a form they like, maybe an animal or a human being. I don't think all of them are capable of accomplishing this as we've seen some who appear to be mid-morph. Sometimes they were disfigured as though they hadn't fully formed a certain part of their body. And other times they were simple shadows or silhouettes whose forms were in constant motion like haze blowing in a wind tunnel. She also told me that Jen are attracted to blood and other bodily fluids as these materials hold some sort of key to obtaining understanding a particular human form. Sometimes I wonder if this absorbance of life through blood allows a jinn to not only mimic a person, but maybe even to impersonate them. Just an idea. 
You've often mentioned that hauntings of children don't make sense to you because why would God leave a child on earth to wander lost and alone? I agree with that questioning and I personally believe these hauntings to be jinn impersonating children. I think each jinn has its own unique motive for doing so. I don't believe that a jinn is necessarily trying to trick or deceive anyone by taking the form of a child, although there may be a few out there who would do harm to others. I found it particularly interesting that the conference speaker mentioned a veil between our worlds and that sometimes the fabric can be torn or pushed through. My friend once told me that jinn are like television reception. Sometimes you have nothing but static, but the more you seek them, think about them, talk about them, you'll suddenly have cable with a crystal clear picture coming through. That said, she always warned me to be careful not to attract them if I didn't want them around, and I like to avoid them if possible. Well, I hope my antenna is bent and I don't get a crystal clear picture either because I don't want to meet any of those. So thanks for sharing that with us, Miranda. We want to welcome to the Spectacular crew, Ron, Zandrin, Lisa, Sarah, and Bonnie, who does roller derby. And I let her know that our niece, Casey, also does roller derby. So that's really cool. All right, guys, are you ready to head on over to Hotel Jeffrey? Come on, let's go. History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and exclusive bonus content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. The Moment in Oddity was suggested by listener Tammy McCarroll Burroughs. The little community of Kona in North Carolina was the scene of a horrific crime in 1831. The details surrounding the murder of Charlie Silver has led to an unusual circumstance at the Kona Baptist Church Cemetery. Charlie was married to Frankie in 1830. They were young and seemed perfect for each other. But things went horribly wrong on December 2nd in 1831. Charlie'd gone out to get some liquor for Christmas. When he got back home to Frankie and their 13-month-old daughter, he was a bit tipsy from imbibing while riding home. No one knows for sure exactly what happened next, but a fight ensues. Charlie grabs a shotgun and threatens to kill Frankie and possibly their daughter. Frankie picks up an axe and uses it, killing Charlie. Now she's left with having to cover up the murder. She hacked up Charlie's body and attempted to burn it in the cabin fireplace. Later, a neighbor became suspicious and he visited the cabin when Frankie was away. He found greasy ashes in the fireplace, along with bone. He found a pool of blood beneath the floorboards as well. Charlie's torso and head were outside the cabin. Frankie was indicted for murder because she did not claim that she was defending herself, but rather just went with a not guilty plea. Frankie was sentenced to death, but the community put out a lot of pressure for her to be pardoned. The execution went through in the end. Now, the unusual circumstance is that people who visit the graveyard find a large granite stone with Charlie Silver's name on it, but that's not where Charlie was buried. Three natural stones rising behind the granite stone mark spots where Charlie was buried. You see, Charlie was not buried all at once. As they found bits and pieces of him, a new burial was done. Burying someone's body in separate places with individual markers certainly seems rather odd. 
afraid of the dark. This Day in History. This Day in History is by April Rogers Crick. On this day, July 13th in 1584, a group of 108 English colonists reached Roanoke Island looking to settle in an unknown land. The expedition was funded by Sir Walter Raleigh and approved by Queen Elizabeth I, who had issued a charter allowing Raleigh to, quote, discover, search, find out, and view such remote heathen and barbarous lands, countries, and territories to have, hold, occupy, and enjoy, end quote. Raleigh did not make the trip with the colonists. Under the commands of Philip Amada and Arthur Barlow, two ships sailed from England on April 27, 1584, and landed on the coast of North Carolina on July 13, 1584. This landing marked the first time the English flag waved in the New World. But this expedition would prove to be unsuccessful. The colonists were unable to establish a good report with the native peoples of the New World and lacked proper provisions for permanent settlement. The colonists would eventually return to England to prepare for another trip the following year. Sir Walter Raleigh reported the discovery of Roanoke Island to Queen Elizabeth I and the new territory was named Virginia in honor of the Virgin Queen. History Goes Bump Podcast. Along the most scenic route to Yosemite National Park is the city of Coulterville, which is home to the historic Hotel Jeffrey. The Magnolia Saloon that is part of the hotel is one of the only saloons in America that still has the traditional batwing doors. Denise would love to swing those things open. And it is the oldest working saloon in California. The hotel has hosted the famous, but it also hosts some unique guests. The hotel is rumored to be haunted by 17 individual spirits. And the unnerving part is that the hotel claims that most of the spirits are not malevolent, meaning that some are. Join us for the history and hauntings of Hotel Jeffrey. Coulterville, California is a very small mining town located in Mariposa County on Maxwell Creek. The town was settled by George W. Coulter in 1850, and he opened a tent store serving miners working in the Maxwell Boneyard and Black Creeks. The settlement was originally called Banderita, which is Spanish for Little Flag, and that was named for the flag flying over George's store. In 1853, a post office was established as Maxwell Creek and changed to Coulter a year later. The entire town is considered a historic landmark. During the gold rush, the town was a major gold mining and supply center. At that time, the town had an estimated population of 5,000 people, and I even read a newspaper article that had it as large as 10,000 people. Coulter was very diverse, with nine nationalities, and it even included its own Chinatown, which meant there were opium dens all over. A little fun fact, Buffalo Bill Cody's brother Nelson was an agent at the Wells Fargo there in Coulterville in 1870. The town had its share of tragedy. In 1862, a major flood destroyed or damaged buildings along the creek. The element of fire would be the next destructive force. A large portion of the town was burned in three separate fires, each oddly occurring exactly 20 years apart. 
starting in 1859, with the next in 1879, and the final one in 1899. I don't know what 20 years has to do with it, but that just seems a bit odd. In its heyday, the town boasted 25 saloons and 10 hotels. You gotta love a place with more bars than hotels. In the late 1800s, the town became a popular stop for tourists on their way to Yosemite National Park. In fact, the first paved road into Yosemite ran right through Coulterville. Today, the town is not quite as bustling as it once was. The 2010 United States Census reported a population of only 200 people. So you go from between five to 10,000 people to 200. Quite the decline. The building that would become the Hotel Jeffrey was built in the 1840s by Mexicans and opened as a store. The walls were built from clay and rock and measured 30 inches thick. There was a Fandango Hall built on the upper floor. We, of course, had no idea what Fandango was, and the rabbit hole was quite interesting that I went down. First, you get the movie ticket selling website, and then I managed to find a ballroom dancer turned wrestler who went by that name. But the Fandango that we're referring to here is a lively folk dance that was designed for couples, and it was created in Spain. It began in the 18th century. The dance is accompanied by guitar, castanets, and hand clapping, and can be danced by either male and female couples or by two males who use it as a type of standoff, mimicking each other's moves and trying to best each other. It's quite festive, and the tempo increases as the songs and dancing continue. The Fandango made it into all of the Spanish colonies and each developed their own flair. And a fun fact about that, the Philippines, as we learned with the Tevenek Lighthouse, was a Spanish colony. It had a Fandango dance that did not use castanets, but rather they carried glasses with candles in them that they occasionally swung around in the air. Can anybody say fire hazard? (laughs) George Jeffrey bought the hotel in 1851 and turned it into a hotel for stagecoach passengers and Gold Rush era miners. The hotel took its name from him. Some famous guests include President Theodore Roosevelt, John Muir, Mark Twain, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and even Queen Elizabeth II. It is considered a historic landmark, and Coulterville was voted one of the most authentic western towns in the United States. The hotel is located 28 miles from Yosemite National Park, and for many years, it's attracted visitors on their way to the park. And because there wasn't a lot of information on the history that we could find on the Internet, I know that Kristen went through a lot of newspaper articles as well as myself. The Oakland Tribune reported in 1941 that an old oak tree was located across the street from the hotel and that it was called Hangman's Tree. Leon Ruiz was hung from that tree in 1856 for killing two Chinese miners, and he also robbed them. The tree was advertised as the business office of the necktie party set. So I guess that was a dire reminder to anybody staying at the hotel. Do anything bad and you'll get the tree. Which does make me wonder if we have some of the people who were hung there walking across the street and staying at the hotel. Up until the 1970s, the hotel had been owned by three generations of the same family. The Santa Ana Register reported in 1976 that the Magnolia Saloon had an antique no trespassing sign that read, quote, Trespassers will be persecuted to the full extent of two mongrel dogs, which never was sociable to strangers, and my double-barreled shotgun, which ain't loaded with sofa pillars. Durned if I ain't getting tired of the hell raisin on my place, end quote. This is not a luxury hotel by any means. The hotel has 20 rooms, some with their own bathroom and others share a bathroom in the hall. That's on the third floor. The rooms also do not contain as many modern amenities as most hotels, such as televisions or telephones. There's a TV room on the second floor where guests can visit and phone calls can be made at the front desk. 
Forrest Monk and Sarah Zahn bought the hotel and have been trying to return it to its former glory. And they did do a fabulous job with restoration until, of course, the fire took a lot of stuff out. And it's my understanding, based on what was written on the website, it sounds like one of these people, Forrest Monk or Sarah Zahn, is no longer a partnership in the hotel. I'm thinking it's Forrest Monk is no longer there, so that only Sarah's still there. But I'm not for sure on that. It's not real clear. The rooms were furnished with antique lights and chairs and crank telephones were also installed that still work. The Magnolia Saloon was restored and the original 40-foot wooden bar and bar back was refinished. There are still bullet holes in the wall of the saloon, so we would surmise that people might have died here in gunfights. Dining options at the hotel include the Victoria Room and the Courtyard. And on Saturday's actor stage, a Western-style gun battle in the saloon. But as I said earlier, I don't think any of this is going on right now. The building caught fire on November 14, 2014 because of some electrical problem, according to an article in the Modesto Bee. In another article from the Modesto Bee, in March of 2015, owner Sarah Zahn was working to repair damage to the building while updating some of the rooms and adding bathrooms so the saloon could be opened. And we're not certain on the current state of the hotel, but it doesn't seem to be open for business yet. The fire damage was pretty extensive. As far as we know, the insurance company was only covering about half of the expenses. So they were trying to raise the rest of the money by other means in order to finish what they were doing there. But again, on the website, they don't have any... If you were running, trying to raise money to help refurbish it, I would think you'd put something up on the main website about it. So I don't know. The Hotel Jeffrey is the main source of commerce and entertainment for the current residents of Coulterville, so it's important for them to get this going again. And Scott had mentioned to us in his email that the hotel was being rebuilt and that the recent fire in the kitchen was described as mysterious. I don't know if it was an electrical problem or, I don't know, or some ghosts playing with candles or something. Unlike many hotels who try not to advertise their paranormal activity, the Hotel Jeffrey has an entire section of their website dedicated to their ghosts. The hotel claims to be home to 17 spirits and ghost detecting kits are available for guests to do a little investigating of their own. According to an article in the Union Democrat, the kit contains an EMF detector, motion sensors, and recording devices. One of the employees reported, several months ago, I was working in the registration office and around 2 a.m. I got up to lock the doors to the kitchen and outside, walking through the dining room before going to sleep. All was well. In the morning around 6 a.m., I went through the registration office to go to the kitchen. This is the route I always take in the morning as it is the only way to unlock everything. When I went through the dining room, right in the middle of my path was the cello, propped up facing me. The cello normally rests off to the side next to the piano about 20 feet on the other side of the wall. No one had unlocked the doors between 2 and 6 a.m. A jilted lover hung herself in room 22 in the late 1800s. A guest staying in that room took a picture of a shadow on the door that he claims contains the shadow of an unknown person. He claims the shadow is not his own and there was no one else on the floor at the time. I looked at this picture and I mean it really does look like there's just somebody standing near the door and their shadows casting on it. But if we take his word for it, kind of strange. A work crew staying at the hotel while working on a nearby road had some startling experiences that they reported. A female member of the crew was staying in room 19, and she awoke in the middle of the night to find the door to the room wide open. She got up to close the door, and upon returning to bed, the blanket and sheet were pulling away from her. She phoned her boss, stating that she was too afraid to stay in the room. And I would be, too. If the sheet's not giving you your shield, you got trouble. 
She asked if she could stay with her boss in room 15. On her way down the hall to her boss's room, all the doors to the rooms began slamming shut one after another, which indicates to me that all of the room doors were opened. This was recounted by the woman's boss as the guest in room 19 was too afraid to speak of the experience and refused to stay another night in the hotel. Activity in room six had steadily... (laughs) And there is a huge thunderstorm going on in the background. I don't know if it's going to end up getting picked up on the microphone, but it's making me reading the ghost stories a bit creepy since I'm sitting here all by myself. Activity in room six had steadily increased in the months after the hotel had been renovated. A man staying in room six with his dog awoke in the night when his dog began barking. The man felt as though he had been burned on his face, and indeed, when he awoke the next morning, there was a mark on his face, as if he'd been punched. Another guest in room six heard voices right next to him, and he said he would not come back to the hotel. Other guests claimed to have heard running down the hallways and have complained that they hear children running up and down the hallways during the night, when in fact no children had been staying at the hotel. A group of paranormal investigators set up equipment in the cedar room, One of the investigators felt scratches on his back and found marks left on his skin upon lifting his shirt. The owners of the hotel have heard disembodied footsteps in the cedar room. The owner says, That room gives me the creeps, and I won't go in it by myself if the lights are not on. HPI paranormal investigators paid a visit to the hotel on Saturday, April 21st in 2012. They reported that their camera batteries quickly drained and quote-unquote dead compasses suddenly came to life and behaved strangely. They interviewed employees, and a dishwasher told them that the stove burners turn themselves off and on, and the saloon doors swing on their own. Guests told the investigators that they often smell cigar smoke when no one in the bar or around the hotel is smoking any cigars, or they might catch a whiff of perfume drifting by from an unseen entity. Locals recounted the legend of the red-eyed roof crawler, who is a dark figure that walks on all fours and sports red glowing eyes. This creature has been seen on the roof of the hotel and usually appears during a full moon. Many locals claim to have seen the red-eyed roof crawler, but the paranormal group did not encounter any unusual creatures during their stay. I wouldn't want to see that thing. The group conducted a seance, and during that, a shadow person was seen. Orbs were seen floating around the room via night vision goggles, and an EVP of a male voice was recorded, although the words were not clear. One investigator was scratched on the back. Some of the investigators also recorded EVPs in their rooms. When they asked, is anyone here? They would receive a voice confirming yes. Our listener Scott told us, quote, I live in this area and once went into the hotel to take a look around. A woman greeted me upon entering and said, yes, this hotel is haunted and you came in to take a look for yourself. Go ahead, look, but don't go in any room with the door closed or you will disturb the guests. I didn't ask to look around and didn't know the place had a reputation for being haunted. I guess enough people have gone in to ask to look around that she gives this greeting to everyone. And from TripAdvisor, The hotel is a remarkable place. Since we absolutely love history, it was wonderful staying in a place over 150 years old. It was clean, upkept, and the food was delicious. However, I experienced something I've never experienced before. Not thinking too much that the hotel could be haunted because I'm very much a skeptic regarding those things. Yet, here is my story. It was a Thursday evening when my family and I were eating dinner in the saloon. Thunder and lightning. Ah, well, I've got that going right now. Thunder and lightning began while we were talking with one of the owners. So he gave us three little lanterns just in case the electricity would be lost. Once in our room, we settled to watch a movie. Our room was at the end of the hall, eight and nine, with a sitting room TV DVD player between the rooms. 
This room is small, so I just laid across the width of my bed in room eight, watching the movie while my husband and children sat on the settee in the small sitting room. While watching the movie, I heard the door handle turn and people talking, murmuring, but couldn't make out what was being said. So I looked at the door. The handle was moving as if someone was outside the door turning it to come in. They couldn't because our door was locked. I tiptoed to the door to see who might be outside. Through the eyepiece, I saw a woman over to the left wearing an 1800-style dress with a nursing cap dabbing the forehead of an older man who looked to be bald with light hair around the edge of his head. Thinking it was a trick, I quickly and quietly got my husband to see this also. As I was quietly approaching the door, I look out again. They were still there. Moving back for my husband to see, he peeked through the door. He didn't see a thing. Again, thinking this was a joke played on us, we opened the door. No one was out in the hall. I cannot explain what I saw, but am I still a skeptic? Not as much as I was when we first came to the hotel. Coulterville is a very historic town, holding on to its Old West roots. Is it holding on to spirits from that bygone era? Do the spirits of previous guests still walk the halls of the hotel in the afterlife? Is Hotel Jeffrey haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, it definitely would be a place to visit. One of the good things about the reports of the fires that they had is, is that the firemen were able to get a lot of the antiques out of the hotel. So a lot of that old stuff was saved. So that's good news. Our next episode is going to feature Stickney House, which was suggested to us by our listener, Kelsey Hunt. We do have some iTunes reviews to share with you. Chinko Teague, 74, great combo, five stars. This podcast is a very nice combination of history and paranormal stories about different haunted locations. The hosts are very genuine and keep it moving so well that you're surprised when you've come to the end. Their occasional mispronunciations of place names drive me crazy, but they're still fun to listen to. Thanks for making my walks interesting again. Well, thanks for tuning in. And yes, we do apologize. Sometimes we do get our pronunciations a little off. I assume that people who go to places that they're not familiar with probably mispronounce things as well. And if we just stuck to what we knew how to pronounce, the show probably wouldn't go very far. So you just have to bear with us. I know some people, it drives them crazy. Other, it's endearing. We try. Myself, Martin, can't get enough five stars. Being a huge fan of history and the paranormal, imagine my delight stumbling onto History Ghost Bump. Denise and Diane are fun listening to with their easygoing and jolly personalities. Makes me feel like a welcome guest. It's easy to see the amount of research that goes into each episode and incredible detail making me feel like I'm right there at these places that I don't have the backbone to actually visit. LOL. I also really love this moment in history and other facts adds to my interest. Please keep up the great work and don't listen to haters. Well, thank you, Martin. We appreciate that. All right, guys. Well, I'm so glad that you joined me here. So I'm not just sitting here in this thunderstorm all by my lonesome. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode was brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Christina Bray. Thanks. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Ninth Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift. 
History Days Bump. Listen. The M Writing Podcast. Society 13. Rebuilding society. One podcast at a time.